Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 69 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is your host, Adam Sokol, and I'm flying solo today on this intro. Uh, Jill is a little bit busy with the holiday season, and uh, yeah, so you've just got me today. Uh, Today's episode is an interview that I did with author Catherine Hall. Uh, She was in the UK where she currently lives, and her latest book is called The Repercussions, For our librarians listening, this is one of the titles that is being featured during our holiday spectacular sale, so you can go into Marketplace and add that to your collection and get some nice savings on it, which is great. Uh, For everyone who's interested in reading the book, which I think will be a lot of people once you hear her talk about it, uh, it's really, really interesting. It's a wartime story told over two different timelines from multiple characters, and uh, we talk about this during the interview, but her research process was... Uh, ridiculous, to be honest. She was researching things from India and Afghanistan and in England where she was from and uh, reading books from different timelines so she could understand proper uh, verbiage from World War One and all these different timelines. So I think you'll really be interested to hear. And plus her life, as is with many of the authors that we talk to, her life is really, really unique. And uh, she wasn't originally an author, but she always wanted to be an author. Uh, and we'll, we talk a lot about how she came to realize the stories that she wanted to tell. So again, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. I had a great time chatting with her. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always email feedback at overdrive.com. Let us know what you're reading this holiday season. We can offer you some uh, reading suggestions and all that good stuff. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest, and if you search overdrive.com for any of these titles, you can sample them and then find them at your libraries, and you can also see all the lists that we have created uh, of title suggestions and things like that. Uh, At overdrive.com, if you haven't done so already, you can also sign up for an Overdrive account, and that will let you get weekly emails from Team Overdrive with suggested reads and letting you know some of the newest titles that are available and for pre-releases and all sorts of good stuff. We want to make sure you always have the ability to uh, get the books into your hands that you want anytime and anywhere. So uh, that's about it for the intro side of things. I hope you are all having a wonderful holiday season, uh, seasons, readings, and all that cheesy stuff we like to say around here. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Adam Sokol from Team Overdrive, and today I'm joined by Catherine Hall, who was born in the Lake District and worked in documentary film production and international peace building before becoming a freelance writer and editor for charities specializing in human rights and development. She is the author of the critically and commercially successful Days of Grace and the Proof of Love, which won the prestigious Green Carnation Prize. 
Her most recent novel, The Repercussions, tells the story of Joe, a war photographer who has just returned home from her latest assignment in Afghanistan. Catherine, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so for our listeners who may not be aware of your works, can you maybe give us a little bit of a dive into the repercussions, just give them a little bit of a, a plot background, perhaps? Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's two main stories in the book, and they're, they're intertwined in, in various ways. Um, so as you said, my main character, or one of them, is, is called Joe, and she's a war photographer. She's just, come, she's just come back from Afghanistan, and she's moved into um, a flat in Brighton, which is um, a small town um, on the south coast of England, um, and she's inherited this, this flat from her great-aunt. And she's in a really bad um, state, uh, partly because of things that happened in Afghanistan, but also for more other, other more complicated reasons. So she wants to, I guess, hide out for a while and sort herself out. And she finds a diary in the flat that belonged to somebody called Elizabeth, and Elizabeth nursed Indian soldiers um, at a place called the Brighton Pavilion in the First World War. Now, the Brighton Pavilion is a very strange building. Um, it was a it was a, a seaside palace um, for, for a prince um, in the in the 1700s, and uh, it looks like an Indian palace. Um, so it's very strange. This this so-called Indian palace in a, um, a British seaside town, <laughs> um, and in the Second World War, it was used um, as a hospital for Indian soldiers, um, Indians who'd been fighting for Britain. And so Joe comes across this diary that Elizabeth's been writing, and it really forces her to, I suppose, come to terms with things that happened in Afghanistan, but also her failed relationship with her ex-girlfriend Susie. And um, the book is written in the form of a long confession to her. So, so actually, having said there's two stories, there's really four. There's what happened to Joe in Afghanistan, what's happening to Joe now, uh, what happened with Susie, and what happened to Elizabeth back in 1915. If you can follow <laughs> So, one of the things that struck me when I was doing research about your novel is I'm trying to wrap my head around how much research you had to have done for this because there's two different timelines and two different wars, and as you mentioned, four different stories. So, can you maybe just give us a little bit of a background how you possibly did the research for all of these different yeah. timelines? <laughs> it was it was complicated. Um, <laughs> it was a combination of sources. I mean, <laughs> I had the idea in the first place because um, I I read an article in, in in one of the British newspapers about these Indian soldiers. So that was where the first the first sort of inspiration came for. And I went to visit the Indian, the the, uh, the pavilion in Brighton. I used to live in Brighton, so I know the city very well. Um, and then it was a case of for the for the story based in the First World War, I read around the subject. I, I looked at photographs at the time. I read letters that soldiers wrote home, um, diaries, local newspapers, history books, um, all the all the letters that the um, that the, the the Indian soldiers wrote back uh, were, were translated because they were censored. Um, so you can, I could go to the British Library and I could find those original letters. And I could read what the the Indian soldiers were actually writing back to their to their families and their friends, which was which was fascinating. Um, the, the 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 pavilion was also intended as a as a I suppose a propaganda tool. It was meant to be um, to show off how well the British were looking after their Indian soldiers because um, memories of, of the mutiny only I guess thirty years before were, were still quite in their minds. So there was a lot of documentation going on. There were postcards made of the um, 
the pavilion, there was films made, there were pictures drawn. So, so because they were trying to show it off, it meant that when it came to me, trying to find out about it, there was quite a lot of material. Um, so that was that was that side of it. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> well, one side, the other, the side about Afghanistan. I, I I really wanted to go to Afghanistan, um, but I just had a baby, um, so I so my partner wouldn't let me go uh, <laughs> and leave the baby behind. But it it, it happened that it was easier to that, that there were more sources to find out about it than I thought. So I had a friend who was working there, and she's a journalist anyway, so she has an eye for for detail. And if I wanted to know things, I could I could ask her, like you know, which is the favourite cafe for expats to to go to in Afghanistan? What does it like? Take me through it, walk me through it. And then when I'd written those bits, I could go back to her and say, does this sound, you know, does this sound okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the internet is something to be, uh, I suppose, approached with care, but there's quite a lot you can see, because if you, if you go onto YouTube, for example, there's plenty of Afghans who drive around the city and they take they take videos on their, on their mobile phones and then they upload it. So it's just normal people taking films of their city and you can come, somebody like me can come along later and go, ah, okay, so that's what that looks like, that's, that's what that looks like. Um, and then I guess... Going back to history, I suppose, because I was writing about the the, the, the whole extent of the Afghan war. Um, and so going back to journalists, um, reading essays um, by, by journalists who were there, going back and looking at photojournalism now and then, um, reading a lot of books about what it is to be a photojournalist, particularly a female photojournalist. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was part of the range of the, of the research. The research took a, a long time. Because you have to get it right. If you if you don't get it right, somebody's going to find you out, and and then they they don't want to believe in the story anymore. So I think you have to be really careful on these things. I think calling the research process complicated might be the biggest understatement of all time. Just <laughs> <laughs> it was big. It was a crazy thing to do between having children, um, particularly because because <laughs> yeah, I was just sort of writing this thing, getting more and more pregnant, knowing there was a deadline, <laughs> and knowing I had to get it finished before the second child was born because then I would have very little chance of getting it finished. Okay, so I'm curious, compared to your other works, what was the actual writing process like? Did this book take a lot longer to write because there was so much you had to make sure that you were putting into the research or maybe just compared to your normal writing process? It was, well, it was different anyway because it was the first, I mean, I keep talking about children, but it really makes a difference. It was the first book I'd written since I'd had a child. Mm -hmm. And I used to be very um, precise about the way I would write. I would go to the British Library in the morning. I'd get there as soon as the doors opened at half past nine. I would stay there till five. I would, you know, just just do that all the time. And with this book, I couldn't do it like that anymore. And I wonder if that's sort of reflected in the structure, that the chapters are shorter. And I think maybe it's because I had very short periods in which I could write so I could leave the baby with the person that was looking after him and then I just really have to sit down and do it <laughs> um, and so the, the, the process of writing it was, was much different it took I suppose it took it took a year and a half two years two years I think um, which was longer than my second book but I wrote my second book in a year because the publisher bought it and told me the deadline so I had to do it <laughs> and the first book took much longer because I you know I didn't have a publisher and so I could obsess over it for as long as I wanted to. <laughs> and I went back and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And with this one, it was much more 
get it down. Don't show it to anybody apart from my agent. So don't rewrite, rewrite, rewrite until you actually get to work with an editor. And so once I was working with an editor, I edited, I rewrote, I rewrote, I rewrote, but not in the same obsessive way as I did with the other one because I just didn't have time. I think I saw in an interview you did that you cut like 60,000 words from this when you were going through the editing yeah. process. Okay, so yeah. as a writer who's spending so many hours painstakingly creating these stories, I'm just curious, what does it feel like to chop that much of your own work out of a book? Well, it's something that I've got a lot, a lot better at. Um, I used to find it excruciating to lose anything at all when right. I was writing the first one. And I've just become better at it, less precious about it. And I suppose it, I read, I can't remember who said it, but I read, I read an article once with a writer who said, basically, whatever you think on the first draft is your best writing, that's going to have to be the bit that goes. <laughs> and it sort, of, it sort of makes sense to me. Um, and, the, and the way I like to write is, is write too much and then cut, 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 cut back down. Um, so I think... I'm automatically drawn to books that are quite short. You know, one of my favourite writers is Jean Rhys, who wrote these very short books that, that were beautifully edited and every word counts. And I suppose, yeah, it, it, it's the way I like to do it. So I don't have this um, great attachment uh, to the mm -hmm. words that I cut, but I do keep them all somewhere just in case <laughs> I ever want to use them again for anything. Because there are, there are sometimes, I suppose, if you, if you feel like you've, you've, you've found a particularly good way of um, describing an emotion or, a, or or something that you see. You kind of don't want to lose it all. You want to keep it in case you need <laughs> right. to use it later on. Yeah. I, I'm just it thinking... Always, it, 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 it takes a lot of brain power. <laughs> I'm just thinking with those 60,000 words, you could write like a, a collaborative, like a, a secondary novel of this story. Just yes. basically just yes. put those all together. I could. I could, like the outtakes or the director's cut. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. So you have all these different timelines and, and characters, as you mentioned. Was it a conscious effort to make sure that the characters sounded different and were easily distinguishable for people? Or is that something that just kind of comes naturally for you? Um, it's a combination of the two. They, they definitely have to sound, sound different. Um, with my first novel, it was a dual timeline, and it was the same person but in two different timelines. So she was a child in the first one and an old lady in the second. And even then, you have to make sure that those voices sound sound different because otherwise people get confused when they're, they're reading between the two the two timelines. With this one, it, it, it was... I mean, I've read a lot of novels set around the First World War or written in the, in the First World War so that I could try and get the language right for her. And so if I, if I was using words that I I wasn't quite sure were appropriate, I'd have to go back to the Oxford English Dictionary and check, was that word being used at that point to describe that kind of thing? Because it's another way of, of getting it right and making the, the readers believe in what you're, what you're saying. You, you can't get it wrong. You can't be anachronistic about things like that. Um, so, yeah, I spent, I spent a lot of time going back over those bits particularly and, and polishing um, Elizabeth's language. Um, yeah, I did. I, I went back and read a lot of diaries um, of, of women in those times to see how they would, to see how they'd write, to see how they'd put things. Sure. And so, 
I know that whether in repercussions or days of grace, the proof of love, do you find yourself writing your own life at all into these characters or do you try to separate your per, your own personality from the characters that you're creating? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I keep thinking that I'm going to write absolutely not about myself and nothing <laughs> about my life. And then it just, it, just, it just creeps in. I mean, you know, why have I written two books about war? You know, why mm-hmm. do I keep writing books about children and either sent away or dead or babies, you know, whatever? It reflects what was going on in my head. I mean, I think I wrote, one of the reasons I wrote I wrote The Repercussions was because I used to work for um, an international peace-building organization. And um, I was in charge of communication, so I would have to um, go off and talk to people in, in, in war zones and um, civilians about, about their experiences. And... Uh, one particular trip I took was in t- 2003 and I went to um, the Democratic Republic of Congo in Rwanda and um, I went to a hospital um, for, for rape victims um, women who'd been raped really as a, as a, as a weapon of war um, which, I was, which I was horribly affected by I don't think you can go to a place like that and not remember it for the rest of your life mm-hmm. um, and then I went to a, a school in Rwanda um, where hundreds of people have been massacred and I it's now a memorial so i I went to 25 classrooms with these skeletons and or partially preserved bodies. You know, some of them mothers with little babies still on their backs, and and I think I was I was I was traumatised by it. I mean, I, I still have nightmares about it sometimes. You know, I, I had terrible nightmares about it. I I felt sick for a long time, and I think and I never meant to write about it, but it clearly went into my psyche somewhere, and has come back out in this, in this writing of war um, and I didn't mean to do it and I don't particularly read books about war um, <laughs> but, but that's what I seem to be doing and it's, it, it's come out in this way um, the second book I wrote um, The Proof of Love was set in the Lake District which is in the north of England um, and it was set in the long we had a, we had a summer drought in, in 76 um, and you know that was based on the farm that I grew up in uh, we moved there in 1976. Um, it's about a mathematician, uh, which has some links with my father, who, who, amongst other things, was a mathematician. It was about a little girl on a sheep farm. I was brought up on a sheep farm, but you know, uh, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's never, it's never especially conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, I don't do it on purpose, but it comes out anyway. Uh, so it's something that strikes me as as fascinating. I, I speak with a lot of writers who will they'll tell me, you know, from the moment I was seven or eight, I knew I wanted to write books, and that that's what I was going to do. And I constantly was writing. You have lived this amazing life with these different, you know, peace building organizations and and fighting for for charities with specializing in human rights and and development. So. I can imagine at a certain point you re- you would probably realize that you have these incredible stories to tell, and I, it would be probably a lot easier to do it as essays or, or stories from magazines and things. So what made you make the leap to say, okay, I'm going to not just tell this these stories, but I'm going to do it as a novel? That's just such a, a big undertaking. Did you always have a passion for, for writing and aspire to, to write books and one day just realize it was time to do that or did it just kind of come out of the blue 
Um, no, it was, it was what I always wanted to do, always since I was a little girl. I just couldn't work out quite how to do it and how to support myself financially while I did it. So, um, you know, I, I did English at university. I, I've always been an enormous reader, and I started writing little bits. But I couldn't quite ever work out my, my subjects. And I think all the jobs that I that I did, you know, I worked in television, um, TV documentary production, and then I worked in the peace building. It was always about telling stories anyway, you know. So it was either doing it through the medium of film or it was through doing it through, I don't know, what else did we do? Reports or little stories on websites. And I think at some point I thought... I think I'm probably ready and I want to be able to tell my own stories or make them up myself because if you're telling other people's stories, particularly stories that are about people in war zones or or anything like that, you have to be ethical about it and you have to tell the truth and you have to tell their stories and there are you know, ethics and morals and rules around how you can do it. Um, and I think I wanted to be able to do it in my own way um, and in a sustained way. I like I like the discipline of novels. I like the length of it. I like the fact that you disappear into it for a couple of years at least. Um, and it's my own thing, you know. I can I can do it myself. And I think, you know, I, I came to a point where I wanted to leave the um, the peace-building organisation. And my grandmother um, said, look, I, I was going to give you some money when I died, but it seems like you're really desperate now. You really want to be doing this writing. Because I'd already written a novel that didn't get published. And mm-hmm. she said, just have this money, <laughs> go away and do it, and, and see how you go. And so I resigned the next day, and that's, that's what I did. <laughs> and I've never gone back to full-time work since wow. then. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned, um, you know, being an avid reader growing up and, and today. Are there authors that either you read when you were growing up or any authors today that y- you feel kind of inspire the works that you write? Are there, there people that you think you see some of yeah. their writing? Lots. Um, <laughs> I wish I could write like them. I mean, I, I mentioned <laughs> Jean Rhys before. Mm-hmm. I love modernist women writers from the 20s and 30s. I like the sort of, I don't know, the, the, the change in how people wrote novels at those times. Um, having said that, I also love people like Angela Carter and her, her magical realism. Um, she really, she really opened my eyes. I suppose I was about eight, 16 to 18, so, you know, quite an impressionable age. And I started reading her and Jeanette Winterson um, and feeling very inspired by the way that they could just manipulate language and make you see things in a different way. Um, I'm writing a historical novel at the moment set in the 1850s. And so I've been looking at writers who I think are really great at writing historical fiction. So Hilary Mantel, who is, you know, the queen of, of, of British historical writing. Um, I've always I've always liked her work. Um Rose Tremaine, she's another great one um, that I'm really into. So, it's, yeah, it's, I, I read widely, I would say. And mm-hmm. My tastes are quite, they're quite diverse. I mean, I think <laughs> I've just mentioned all women there. <laughs> Not that I am speak women. But, um, yeah, just, just getting into bed with a book and just reading is, is probably my, one of my biggest pleasures in life, I think. I would, I would completely agree. Um, you also yeah. mentioned <laughs> spending a lot of time writing uh, at a library and we're, a library company here at Overdrive. Do you have any memories growing up of spending a lot of time in a library or anything about the library oh, that, that yes. stood out to you? Yes. I mean, libraries are, libraries, as soon as I go into a library, I feel better. It's like nothing <laughs> bad can happen in a library because it's just 
books <laughs> and I feel safe there. So when I was when I was very small, my mum, who is also a great reader, um, we would go to the library together and she would choose her books and I would choose my books. And then, you know, we'd go away and read it. But it was our special thing that we did every week. Um, and I didn't have a great time at, at school. I went to quite a rough, a rough school in the north of England. But it had a library and most people didn't want to be in the library. And I really did. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a place where, you know, I could retreat. Um and when, I mean, when I got to when I got to university, that was amazing because it was mostly libraries, and that's what you were supposed to be doing all the time. Uh, so just you know, going to a place where you could be in libraries all day and all night if you wanted to was just really special. Um, and I think I remember after I'd had my my first child, going back to the library for the first time and just having this incredible sense of peace <laughs> and knowing that it would it would be all right. And, and, and the, the great thing is, when I go to the library, nobody really knows where I am, because uh, the British Library is big, mm-hmm. people don't know where I'm sitting, and I go to this you know, little corner where you know, hardly anybody goes, um, and you look at the wall, <laughs> and, and I always sit in the same seat, and I just, I just love it, I just have this extreme sense of calm, and, and I feel nowhere else, I think, nowhere else. I completely agree. What you mentioned about no one knowing where you're at, I feel the exact same way. I love going into our local libraries and just like finding these little nooks and crannies where no one would think to go look for a human being. I that when you, I completely agree with you. <laughs> it's a good feeling. Absolutely. It's a good feeling. I make now. I I take my children to the library once a week, and when we all go and they go and sit down and they find books and. And it's really nice. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so I, I wanted to give our, our listeners just a, a chance, if they're interested, given your strong roots in you know fighting for human rights and, and making these stories something that people are aware of, if anyone listening has an interest in helping some of those causes but maybe can't dedicate their lives to them, do you have any organizations or anything you would recommend they look into? Well, I mean, I guess it, it partly depends where they're based. Because if they're based in the States, then I wouldn't know specific ones there, but I would know international ones. I mean, I, I really believe in the work of Oxfam International. I think they're very good. Mm-hmm. Um, Save the Children, if people are interested in, in children. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones, ones that are, that are international. I mean, those would be the two main ones that I would yeah. I would support. Med Sans Sans Frontier, actually. Med Sans Sans Frontier, who send doctors into, into places. I think they're a really good and non-political mm-hmm. um, organization. Um, so they just get on with it. I think they, they would be my three. Yeah. Perfect. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but I thought you might be able to give... No, no. I was I suppose I should have told you that before we started chatting. That was that was my fault. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, so towards the end of our podcast, we like to ask nine kind of rapid fire questions. We just call them the nerd nine because I'm a fan of alliteration. Um, these are very lighthearted, so not too much thought in them, but just, these will be just really quick questions. And the first thing that comes to to your head is the perfect answer. So the first one is what's the last book that you finished? It's um, called The News by Jesse Burton, and it's wonderful. I would really recommend it to everybody. Just out in hardback in the UK, so but I know she's got a deal in um, in the states as well. Nice. What's your favourite place to read? Bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Mine as well. Uh, do you have a guilty pleasure? 
Yes, I do. Uh, she's an English writer called um, Julie Cooper, and uh, she writes about horses and the upper classes, and I think she's fantastic. <laughs> um, so I know you've been all over the world, but what's one place you would like to travel that you have not yet been to? Well, I actually would, really would like to go to Afghanistan. Um, I'd like to see if the way I put it um, is, is in any way correct. <laughs> I think it's a fascinating place. I'd like to go. Sure. What's your favorite holiday? My favorite holiday is the south of France um, with a pool and lots of rosé wine and lots of books. Perfect. Uh, do you have a favorite movie? I do. It's probably The English Patient. Um, because it's just a great story. Uh, are you a cat person or a dog person? Definitely dog. Wonderful. Uh, favorite food? Cheese sandwiches. Ooh, <laughs> nice. And then if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you choose? I think I'd probably go back to Jean Reese um, because there'd be a lot of booze involved. She really likes her drink. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> and we go to a little restaurant in Paris because she loves Paris and so do I. And I think that's what we do. That is the absolute best reason I think I've ever heard. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, I have one last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading The Repercussions? Hmm. I think, I hope they take away from it an understanding of trauma of war and all the different ways, the repercussions of war, that's why I called it that, and the, the way that the things that happen during war or conflict affect people for generations. That's what I'd like them to take from it. That's wonderful. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. A total pleasure. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.